This episode is brought to you by The Daily Poem, a brief podcast which offers one essential poem each weekday. From Shakespeare and John Donne to Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost, The Daily Poem curates a broad and generous audio anthology of the best poetry ever written. Find it on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. And find out why listeners call it an oasis, thought-provoking, and a great daily excursion into beautiful language. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today we'll be discussing Old Norse death poetry. That is the genre of Old Norse literature encompassing poems often written by men who were about to die. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Matthias Nordvik of the University of Colorado Boulder. He teaches pre-Christian Nordic mythologies, Scandinavian folklore, North Atlantic and Greenlandic literature, reception history of the Viking Age, and much more in the Nordic Studies program there. Dr. Nordvig, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Noah. Thank you for inviting me once again. I'm always happy to be here. Well, thank you. It's certainly my pleasure. Old Norse death poetry is a subject that I've been wanting to delve into for quite some time. But first and foremost, how should we understand the genre of death poetry within Old Norse literature? And what is sort of the history of this type of poetry? Well, so I I would uh, personally say that um, in a sense, uh, death is, a, is sort of the, the bedrock of, of this poetry that the Vikings um, begin to, to create or formulate in, in the Viking uh, era. Um, because so much of skaldic poetry, but also what we call Eddic poetry, is actually centered around the commemoration of the dead, uh, especially heroes and kings. Um, but also, in that sense, as, as these poems are being created, um, we get glimpses of how they would have viewed the afterlife and how they uh, saw this idea of, of, of death. Um, and uh, just to give you some examples of, of the runic material, so on runestones from uh, Sweden in, in particular, we ha- actually have some uh, stanzas that uh, are said uh, by scholars to to relate closely to um, the poetry that we find in the medieval Icelandic literature. And um, a good example of this. So uh, to start off, we have many types of poetry. In modern times now, as scholars, we separate them in two categories, skaldic poetry and eddic poetry. Eddic poetry is the oldest. And it is really what we call Eddic poetry actually uh, is a lot of different meters. So it's not just one type of, uh, of, of uh, poetry. Um, it's, uh, it, it, we have different meters that are used for different situations. The 
prominent one um, is Fornirislag, which means uh, the meter of ancient words. And this one is typically the one where we see compositions about the Nordic gods and ancient heroes. Um, but we have uh, several others as well. And then what we call skaldic poetry, uh, this type of meter is very complex and it uh, arise, so, so to speak, in the Viking Age from the 800s. The oldest uh, poem that we have is uh, Ragnastraupa, which is uh, said to be from the 800s. Of course, we can't uh, accurately date the, uh, uh, the, when these poems were created. We can only go from um, who's, uh, who, which names are they attached to. Uh, um, and that is the case with skaldic poetry. They're typically attached to known composers, uh, whereas Eddic poetry is not. And then we can say, oh, well, this guy, according to the literature, lived around this uh, uh, period. Uh, say, for instance, if a skald is composing a poem about a known king that we can place in time, we can say, oh, he was alive at that period. So that's how we can say that Ragnarstraupa um, that was composed by Brahe the Old, um, is from the 800s. And what uh, uh, what's, uh, is really interesting uh, about um, uh, some of this, uh, uh, these runestones from Sweden is that they actually have uh, 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 single stanzas that are, uh, uh, very few of them have these single stanzas that are composed in either Fornirislaug or the Drotkveit meter that uh, is used in skaldic poetry. And just to give you a couple of examples, we have the Rökstone from Österjötland in Sweden, and that is from around the 800s. And it is uh, the stanza that we see on this stone is composed in Fornirislag. Now, this stone was raised in memory of a man called Vemoder by his father, um, um, uh, who raised this stone to commemorate his life. And Actually, the the sort of the uh, the text on the stone is is very um, mystical in a sense. He he mentions a lot of ancient uh, figures and their deeds. And one of the th uh, things that he or one of the persons that he mentions is actually Theodoric the Great, uh, so a, a Ostrogothic king uh, who uh, became uh, the ruler of Italy in uh, 493, so uh, some 300 years before the stone was raised. And the stone says, Theodoriker uh, the Bold, chief of sea warriors, ruled over the shores of Hreysia. Now he sits armed on his Gothic horse, his shield strapped, the Prince of Maivings. And this doesn't give us a lot of ideas of like, what were the, these people actually thinking about this uh, Theodoric the Great. Um, but what it does tell us is that um, this poetry um, has the capacity to commemorate individuals who lived several centuries before. And that's really the power of it, I would say. And uh, if we go into the stanza, we could also see, see that he's, uh, he sits armed on his Gothic horse, his shield strap. So um, this might be sort of a vision of uh, how he lives in the afterlife. And that's how a lot of the poetry functions. 
We have another one from Öland, uh, also Sweden, from around the year 1000. And this is composed in the Drottkvate meter that um, is associated with skaldic poetry. Uh, this stone, the Kalevi stone, is raised to a man named Sipi, who was also Gordi. So he was a pagan priest. And it says, He lies hidden who followed the greatest deeds, a chieftain in his mound. Uh, Never again shall such a battle-hardened sea warrior of Endel's mighty dominion rule unsurpassed over the land of Denmark. So again, we have this situation of commemorating a great um, warrior or king um, and, and uh, mentioning his deeds, uh, this uh, a battle-hardened sea warrior of Endel's mighty dominion means that he was a a, a mighty Viking, basically. Endless mighty do dominion means the sea. So, um, so, so that's how that's how this poetry basically comes to life in Viking Age culture. And and then we have all the written literature that that is written primarily in Iceland. Um, uh, 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 that is also uh, commemorating the poetry and. Um, has carries sort of the memory of this poetry that was made in the Viking Age. And one thing I find um, to be really important in this regard is how the mythology also talks about this, the poetry in general. So first of all, um, skaldic poetry, according to Nordic mythology, was created through death. We have um, this myth in Snorris Edda, where Odin, uh, uh, or sorry, um, uh, the gods create this man named Kvasir after the, um, the Aesir and Devania, the two main uh, uh, groups of gods, have settled the truce. They create Kvasir from their spittle, so basically the liquid that comes from their mouth. And then uh, this man goes around all over the world and, um, and dispenses knowledge, basically. And then he goes to the underworld. He meets the dwarves there. And these two dwarves called Fjallar and Galar, they end up killing him. And then they use his blood to make the meat of poetry. And then eventually Odin then comes and, uh, and retrieves it and brings it to the gods. So what this myth basically tells us is that the foundation of the poetry is death. It is created from the death of, of the wisest man that was created by the gods. And so um, if we go to o Odin's poem, Halvamal, uh, the speech of the high one, where Odin dispenses all of this knowledge and wisdom, he says in stanzas 76 and 77, and I'll read these in Old Norse, he says, Der fjer, der frender, der schauer itzama, en orstir, der aldregi, quaim er ser god an geter, der fjer, Dea frender, der sjalveritsama, ik weet een, at altre deer, domer um döden kwern. And what this means is that he basically says, uh, cattle will die, kinsmen will die, you will die yourself. Uh, but one thing that never dies is your reputation. And then uh, in the second stanza, he says uh, again the same thing cattle will die, kin will die, you will die yourself. But I know one thing that never dies, and that's the judgment of every dead person. So 
simply, uh, the, what he, what he's talking about here is the uh, the death poetry. He's talking about commemorative poetry and this memory of these ancient kings and these ancient heroes whose deeds were worth uh, commemorating by Vikings. Fascinating. Well, when reading these poems, do we get any insight as to how the Vikings or medieval Scandinavians would have viewed their dead? And does that relate in any way to memorials and commemoration practices that would have occurred after one died? Yeah, so um, if we go to a poem such as um, Eiriksmaul that commemorates the death of Eric Bloodaxe, uh, the son of uh, Harold Finehair. One thing that's uh, really interesting to see is we only have a, a, a fragment left of it, but it's really interesting to see that the, the, this poem is set in Valhut, where Odin is preparing for, the, uh, for, for Eirik's uh, um, coming. And, and uh, um, the, there's conversation going on um, where um, uh, Odin and uh, Bragi, the god of poetry, are, are uh, uh, talking to one another. And, um, and uh, Bragi, for instance, asks him, um, uh, why, if he was such a great warrior, why did you um, not give him victory? Why, why did he die? And then Odin res- responds that he, you, you're never sure when the wolf uh, will uh, come to the homes of the gods. So this is the earliest instance of where we get this idea that Odin is collecting warriors, great warriors, uh, for his uh, his abode in in the death realm, Valhut, which literally means uh, um, the hall of the the slain, or perhaps sort of in a in a metaphorical sense, um, is is actually talking about the battlefield itself. And so it's 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 at the core of the mythology as well the idea that um, that um, uh, um, that that the great warriors will die and go to Valhut and and be celebrated there and uh, also enjoy a, a life with uh, uh, or an afterlife with uh, um, wine and and mead and beer and and all the things you can eat and of course also fight. And what we also see in such poetry, um, and as well as uh, various prose stories, is that in, these, in this afterlife, when the hero or king arrives, they're usually greeted by some of the ancient warriors that, uh, that we know from other parts of the literature, like uh, Sigurd the dragon slayer and, and, and such figures. So there's, there's also this sense of being reunited with um with prominent individuals or family members or significant uh, uh, people in your life interesting interesting so this is a question that perhaps leads astray slightly from the topic of death poetry but when talking about how old norse speakers would have viewed death many people listening are of course familiar with valhalla and some of the other realms that one might go to after death but where did your average Scandinavian farmer or craftsperson think they would end up once they died? So that is a very good question. Um, of course, Snorri Sturluson in his Edda gives us this idea that there are basically two death realms. There is one for heroes and kings. Um, that would be this idealized Viking paradise, Valhut. And then there's one for everybody else, which is hell, as he says. And, and that is 
according to his descriptions, the most boring place in the world. Um, it is a, it is dark and damp, and um, the the entrance is called Stumbling Block, so you fall into it, and you uh, you you live a dreary life where um, the the dish is called hunger and. And uh, the the servant is called lazy and and all such things. Now Snorri tells us that um, the people who die of old age and um, and uh, um, sickness they go there. Now I think that that is a very um, Snorrian creation, <laughs> as I call these things in 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 his uh, um, rendition of the mythology. Uh, this is um, this is probably not how people would have seen. The afterlife. We have in the poem Grimnismal, um, where uh, Odin is talking about the mythology to um, uh, to the king Geirröder, um, where o- Odin is listing these different places in the beginning of of this poem. He says, uh, "The land that I see uh, uh, close to the Aesir and the Alvar, so the uh, the gods." Is holy, and then he begins listing these abodes of the various deities, and they they seem to relate to some extent, at least, to the qualities that are otherwise associated with the gods. Um, for instance, uh, Frigg um, um, lives in Fensalir. Uh, we have uh, Freya uh, who um, lives in Sesrimnir and takes half of the slain, according to this poem. So that means then that warriors could go to Freya as well, at least according to this poem. And, and we have all of these other places as well that um, people might have thought, um, if I am a farmer and I um, say that the, uh, I, my main pursuit in life is, of course, to, to grow uh, crops and, and therefore I'm very um, uh, focused on the fertility of the fields. So I would probably go to an abode that is associated with one of the deities that has that function in my life. That could perhaps be Freyr um, as a fertility deity or Sif, um, Thor's wife, or, or, or who knows. And um, we know from other, if we look at it in a comparative perspective, we know from other mythologies that there's sort of a tendency to th- uh, perceive the afterlife as a mirroring of the life that you have lived. So Snorri's uh, uh, story about this uh, horrible uh, uh, underworld uh, probably doesn't um, hold up to the reality of the Viking Age. A Viking farmer would probably go to um, um, the, 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 this, um, the place associated with, uh, with a god like Freyr or something like that. And we also see this, of course, in the archaeology. We see um, that uh, people are buried with items that relate to the life that they have lived, obviously because uh, those who buried them thought, well, you will need this in your afterlife. And you're also, we also see that the people, at least who could afford it, were buried with uh, means of transport, like um, um, a horse or a boat or a wagon or, or something like that, which might indicate that people also thought that you would undertake a journey to get there. And this is also something that we see in uh, the mythology and in the poetry. Um, 
if we go to a poem like uh, Baldur's Dromar, the story about Baldur's dreams, it is uh, interesting to see that. Um, uh, so, what happens in this poem is that um, uh, Odin, um, uh, first of all, Baldur has all of these dreams about his own death, and then Odin decides to uh, uh, to to ride on Sleipnir, his eight-legged horse, to the underworld, where he consults with a dead vulva, so a seer uh, who can predict the future. And uh, there he tries to uh, uh, tease out some knowledge from his conversation with her. She's very reluctant. She's not uh, happy about it at all. But she ends, um, uh, um, she ends up telling him that Balder will die and uh, uh, the way that the, this will happen through, the, um, uh, through Hildur um, uh, shooting an arrow and killing him. And then, uh, of course, uh, she also curses him and um, tells him basically that Ragnarok will come. So that's an, that's, that, that poem sets a scene of how they also perceive the afterlife. How you, um, uh, in order to get there, you have to undertake some journey. And then uh, once you get there, you see different um, sort of aspects of the afterlife. You have to cross a bridge, typically. There's also typically a gate um, to, to the underworld and there are high walls that you cannot pass and all of these things. And there's also typically always some kind of warden of the underworld, which is often cast as a female. What we see in the poem um, Hellraid Brynhildar, which is the story about uh, Brynhildur, um, the famous Valkyrie and and first lover of Sigurd the Dragon Slayer, um, uh, when she has died and is going to the underworld, it's, it's again this situation of, of, of passing through. Um, and one of the first things that happens is that she runs into a troll woman um, who asks her, uh, or who basically tells her not to, uh, that she cannot pass. And then she has a standoff situation um, with her. Which, um, of course, indicates to us that, uh, that there is uh, the idea that, the, that not anybody can pass uh, into the realm of the dead is very prevalent, too. We, uh, we see this, too, in Snorri's uh, story about Balder's death in his Edda, where Hermoder, after Balder has died, Hermoder, uh, who is Balder's brother, he rides in Sleipnir to go to hell to retrieve Balder. And there he meets uh, Molgudr, she is called, this figure that uh, is the warden of the underworld, who asks who he is and uh, says that um, something to the effect of um, the bridge uh, resounds uh, more heavily than an entire army when you're riding on it, or something to that effect. And that, um, again, gives us this idea that, that this realm is not for everyone it's only for for those who have actually died and uh, otherwise you have you have to have some kind of special reason to go there so to speak well throughout the genre of death poetry in old norse literature we see many dramatic and exceptionally violent death scenes would it be unfair to say that the vikings had a fascination with death based off of their literature um that's a that's a good question um, maybe you could turn it around a little bit and say that um, 
well, if we're talking about Vikings, individuals who um, whose main pursuit in life uh, is involved with war in different ways, they would, of course, uh, also need um, sort of a, a, a um, fundamental uh, underpinning of ideology for that. Um, this, uh, anybody who has sort of uh, faced death in those situations will know that, that uh, these questions can, will often uh, become important to you in different ways. And the, the Vikings were no different in that regard. They, they of course, needed to think um, about this and, and also uh, um, need, need to, needed to feel some kind of comfort. And I think such poems um, that give us these visions of, of interactions in the underworld between a hero and the warden of the underworld or uh, tells us about the journey or um, gives us a, ideas about how uh, the, the, the afterlife is furnished, they help giving, give you some kind of comfort in that situation. They basically um, um, make you more comfortable with the notion that, that you have to die, perhaps, on the battlefield. Um, so I think, I think it's that way that these, uh, uh, these poems have, have been uh, created. Not so much like a sort of a initial morbid fascination with death, as much as it is a, is a, a tool that helps you as you uh, face uh, the possibility of death, if nothing else. Well, that makes sense. And, you know, if one looks at the Norse gods who appear to be more interested in living aristocratic lifestyles and settling disputes as opposed to being inherently interested in warfare and battle, um, this idea that some might have of the Norse gods being uh, inherently warlike, one can see how this poetry might have inspired the Viking warriors of medieval Scandinavia. Oh, sure. And um, so what, what, what these... Uh, poems are doing in different ways are, is that they're, they're, they are addressing all of these universals of loss and, um, and, and the uncertainty of an afterlife. You, you could also, you know, uh, I'm sure Vikings could have doubted uh, themselves in that regard uh, once in a while and, and, and maybe questioned whether or not there was anything after death. Um, but you know, and um, the gods, yeah, they. We also have to consider in that regard that that the literature that we have available to us has been selected by someone or or a collective of people uh, at some point in the medieval period. We, uh, as Margaret Clunes Ross, uh, a famous scholar of of uh, Old Norse literature, says, we only have the tip of the iceberg. So there, there must have been so much more all kinds of situations of, of life and death uh, available. But um, what we have in the 13th century in Iceland in particular is this um, strong focus on the ancient rulers and the important heroes. And so that is really sort of a funnel of selection that is happening when things are being written down. Um, and these, thing, these poems and the stories of, about the ancient Vikings are being written down mainly to cater to the 13th century Icelandic culture and uh, mainly by individuals who need this in various ways, as, for instance, propaganda tools uh, when they're uh, 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 
uh, fighting out rivalries uh, among each uh, each others uh, to uh, to establish themselves as the most dominant uh, uh, chieftain in 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 the realm, right? So in that sense, um, we might have a a, a bit of a a, a skewed pers- perspective on on what that Viking Age culture actually was, because these people uh, after the Viking Age have been selecting uh, the the most the, what was to them the most important parts of the literature. But um, you can also see in in in, in cer- certain instances we get other kinds of of ideas. We get glimpses of of how um, how um, the Vikings might have related emotionally to this. Um, one of my favorite poems is Eil Skatlagrimson's Sonatorek, which is which he composes about the the death of his son. His son has drowned, and um, and then he composes this uh, lamentous uh, poem where he he simply begins off by saying, "It is hard for me to lift my tongue. Um, it is I I have no uh, sound or." Or air in my chest to uh, uh, compose this poem. Um, I can't find any words. Um, um, the thoughts are lying heavily in my brain, and so on. And and he's he's having like a battle even in in his mind um, uh, over this. This is this is really like this is where we get a I, I think at least like an awesome glimpse of of how. They would have treated such an emotion as sorrow, and and he, he this um, this poem is is fairly long actually. It's uh, twenty four stanzas, and, um, and one of the one of the things that the also uh, I think is a is a very interesting component of this poem is that he uh, uh, he says in stanza six, it is hard for me to see the hole that was beat. In uh, the fence of my kin, uh, because my son was taken by the sea, and now this spot will always stand open. So he has like this idea of the the um, the family as as sort of a a, a rampart or a fence that is uh, guarding the the inner sanctum of the family, the honor and and the property, and the son. Was one of the pillars in that fence, and now the uh, um, this, the ocean has uh, uh, created a hole there. And he goes on to cursing uh, Ram, uh, the goddess of the sea, who's you know whom he holds responsible for doing that. So that also gives us an idea of how could Vikings actually have related to to um, uh, the experience of losing a loved one. They could have cursed the gods for that. They could have directed their anger towards the gods, which, of course, then tells us that their perception of how, uh, how the human-god relationship was is very different from, from, uh, from what we otherwise know from, from our modern Western societies, I think. No doubt. That's incredibly fascinating. Well, Dr. Nordvig, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned a great deal. You're always welcome back on the show. It's been such a pleasure. And I will put a link in the description below to your splendid YouTube channel, the Nordic Mythology Channel, and a link to your website as well, the NordicMythologyChannel.com. 
and your academia.edu page so folks can uh, follow you along there. But uh, thanks again for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. It's always a pleasure to join you here. Um, And I'll be happy to join you uh, at some other time in the future.